This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. Hey, everybody. Um, I'm here with a repeat guest uh, for some of you, uh, Dr. Richard Hanania. And, uh, you know, if you don't know about Richard, uh, you're not paying close attention. Um, since the last time I talked to him, which was like six months ago, and, and I, you know, I would say I talk to Richard fairly frequently, just he gives me a different heterodox perspective. He's always fun, funny, and interesting, whether you agree with him or disagree with him. But um, he's kind of blown up. Uh, a lot has happened. Uh, he said a lot of things and gotten a lot of reaction. And so uh, I'm excited to talk to him about Israel, Palestine, uh, American culture, and whatnot politics. Uh, Richard, can you introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm Richard Hanania. I'm the president of the uh, Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, a new think tank doing a lot of interesting work. And I am also a um, research fellow at Defense Priorities, and I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I have my own Substack. I'm just I just like to look for avenues to share my opinions. So that's pretty much what I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you almost do provocation uh, arbitrage. Um, I think you provoke. I think no. I think I think you provoke people in a good way. You know, uh, you go where uh, angels <laughs> fear to tread. Although sometimes, if if those of you who follow Richard's Twitter. Um, Follow it and watch closely because he will delete some of the best tweets. I'm going to – the best stuff is like an Instagram whatever story. Oh, don't you know? people off. Come on now. People are going to go and, and try, to, try to catch me. <laughs> um, in any case, all right. Um, so Israel and Palestine, I want to talk to you about this because you, you sometimes tweet things a little against the American grain, I think. Like a lot of Americans, um, it's just kind of something in the background of our lives – uh, as we're as we're recording right now, BB is no longer prime minister, which is the first time in like a dozen years. He's kind of been, you know, a generational figure from the '90s for a little while, and then he kind of came back in the 2000s or late 2000s. Um, you know, so there was some conflict, there was some battle lines. Okay, we know we know what the what the top line, you know, of this all is. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. It's our ally. Um, we need to like love Israel as much as the U.S. Also, the Palestinians are oppressed, marginalized people. Um, they are the most oppressed people in the world. I mean, I'm being a little sarcastic here, but like these are these are the the cutouts that I see from both sides. So, um, you know, can you t- tell us what your perspective is, just so that we get something a little bit different here? Yeah, I mean, so I, you know, my main area of focus and expertise is in uh, international relations, and I'm a Palestinian, so you might think I, you know, have uh, strong opinions on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, You know, I I really don't. I mean, I think that, you know, what the people on the Israeli side will say is that uh, the Palestinians don't want to or don't have the capacity to make peace. Uh, What the Palestinians will say is that Israel is... uh, occupying their land and, you know, kick them off their land and is a, engaging in a form of ethnic cleansing in certain uh, certain areas in uh, East Jerusalem. And both of them are, you know, both of those perspectives are pretty much right. Um, 
And there's not like much, you know, intellectually interesting about the problem of Israel-Palestine because it's been sort of in a stalemate for decades and decades. I mean, how do how do conflicts end? I mean, one side crushes the other uh, often. And so that's, uh, you know, that's not going to happen. Israel is, uh, you know, not going to do that for political reasons. Even the U.S., which, you know, uh, which is somewhat, um, you know, was very differential to Israel is is probably going to give them some problems if they try to do that. There's internal resistance to that within Israel. Uh, And then, you know, sometimes like you have a dictator who just forces one side to make peace. I mean, the the uh, when Egypt and Jordan and uh, these when these countries made peace with Israel, I don't think there was popular support for it. But they were dictators who could basically tell their countries what to do. Uh, You know, they have a uh, in in, uh, the Palestinian uh, in Gaza, you know, you had a uh, you had Hamas come to power. You know, so they're a revolutionary movement. Their ideology is not going to allow them to make peace. Uh, so we're basically, you know, this, this is what, what it's going to be for a very long time. I, you know, I think if you just summed up the history a, a decade ago, I don't think it looks much different than uh, today. Two decades ago, I don't think it, you know, it didn't look much different. Uh, today, it doesn't look much different. I think, you know, eventually the you could get. Uh, sort of a right-wing radicalization of Israel soci- Israeli society. It's happening gradually, but because of the demographics, because of the or- ultra-Orthodox having uh, so so many kids, uh, you know, I think you'll get to the point where you know Israel just sort of does the uh, more more uh, uh, sort of strenuous kind of ethnic cleansing thing and doesn't really care what the rest of the world thinks. Uh, that's not that's not going to happen probably in the immediate future. Uh, but you know, that's the only real way I, I see this thing eventually ending. Well, I mean, what would you say to my contention that Israel started out a settler colonial state, but it's turning into a Middle Eastern state? Uh, So a Middle Eastern state in this, well, I mean, in the sense that uh, how, how do you mean that? Um, So, you know, it was predicated on a sort of European, I don't want to say linguistic nationalism, but, you know, the Jewish nationalism, secular Jewish nationalism, uh, you know, the... um, the alignment movement, you know, that labor came out of and whatnot. And then over time, uh, the arrival of massive numbers of Mizrahi, Sephardic, and Yemeni Jews uh, kind of introduced a new element of, you know, it's not necessarily accurate or precise to call them Arab Jews, but they were Jews from, you know, Araby, the Arab lands. And so these are not people that went through the European experience. And uh, over time, you have these ultra-Orthodox, these Haredi that are growing in numbers, as well as the rise and coalition, coalescence of a, of a national, uh, national religious uh, sentiment, which is kind of like a, a little different than anything that existed in the early 20th century. Um, and these elements are not out of a European national tradition from the 19th century. Um, something like the Haredis, um, I think they resemble some sort of, you know, like, uh, like the Shia minority in Lebanon. You know, they're more there. You can imagine them more like that. Like, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these are I mean, I, I think I mean, it's just simpler to say it's gone from a secular uh, more of a secular nation state to more of a religious state. Um, that just might be the most simple, you know, explanation of what's going on. And, you know, the, the, it's it's differential for uh, fertility. Um, I think that's happened actually uh, in a lot of places across the Middle East. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a transition and, you know, the idea that, 
um, you know, for what I'm talking about, whether they would, you know, the, the, the sort of the means with through which they deal with the uh, uh, with the minority uh, ethno uh, religious uh, uh, rival, you know, within their borders or uh, across their borders. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's much of a difference in the way that a uh, Middle Eastern state and a uh, and a ethno nationalist, uh, you know, uh, early 20th century European state uh, would deal with that. I mean, the, the ethno nationalist uh, European state, you know, before say the post-world you know before uh uh the second world war i mean i think they pr- would have dealt with uh you know their opponents pretty harshly but uh, yeah I, I i get what you're saying i mean there, there is um there is a, a certainly an evolution into a more religious state um mm-hmm. and yeah with all that entails i mean there's there's too much too many differences to go well into i mean it could be it could be in 30 oh. to 40 years we couldn't imagine gay pride marches in tel aviv you know, I, I think you are a little skeptical about some of the Likud hawks in the United States. You know, uh, just for the international listeners out there, there is a fraction of the Republican Party, um, which is really, you know, and I do, you know, lean to the right myself personally. But um, I will say it's just a little strange to me about how they seem to like place Israel um, right next to the United States as if their loyalties are equal to both. And, um, you know, I, I think you kind of like to poke fun at that. I mean, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, the worthlessness of the American conservative movement is sort of a theme throughout my work. And one of the, you know, one of the uh, one of the symptoms of this is their slavish devotion to Israel. I mean, I don't think it's a, a voter. Th- I mean, I don't think it's as much. It, it's some, somewhat of a popular support thing, but it's mostly a donors thing. And it's a, mostly a they, they get excited when they can call the Democrats anti-Semitic because Democrats are always calling them intolerant, racist or sexist or homophobes. So the one thing that they get to call Democrats is anti-Semitic. So they, I think they just really, really indulge in being sort of the PC enforcers uh, for once. Um, and then you have, you know, you have the the donors and the and the power seeking, and it really is pathetic. I mean, there was a a, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a Netanyahu was posting on his, his Twitter account, just like different like Republican senators um, who are coming up to him and like groveling to him. So one was like Lindsey Graham, and he, you know he, he says uh, he gives Lindsey Graham, I don't know, like a certificate or something, or like something to like show like he's a you know a friend of Israel, and like Lindsey Graham holds it up like he's like a five year old, and like you know he just got a, he just got a cookie or something. And then is and then Nanyahu sort of rolls his eyes at the camera, like, "Oh my God, this guy is contemptible!" Like he he just embarrassed him, uh, and then so, and so you know he, this stuff happens a lot. And there was one with Ted Cruz, you know, where you know the U.S. pays for uh, uh, Israel's uh, Iron Dome, and then you know Ted Cruz says, "You know, thank you, you know, Mr. Nanyahu, for all you do. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. Um, you know, thank you for Iron Dome." And you know Nanyahu's like, "No, no, thank you. <laughs> I mean, the thing it was paid for by the U.S." And so. So these guys are just, you know, they're, they're just completely embarrassing. I mean, they don't, you know, they complain about, they run on certain things and they complain about certain things that have popular support. And when they get into power and, you know, what, what they show they really care about, it's, it's something completely different. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, what I'm getting from you is do you think that this will just kind of continue until it evolves and just fades into, you know, Israel will solve its Palestinian problem, um, so to speak. Um, by just not having Palestinians within the borders of Israel. That's what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, they. Yeah, I, I. Well, I mean, no, I, I think I don't know if that's gonna. I don't know if they're gonna kick out the uh, Palestinians who are already there. Um, but I think there's gonna be. I, I think there's just gonna be less. You know, I think there's gonna probably gonna be harsher responses to say missiles coming from Gaza. Um, I think you're gonna see like you know less concern with uh, humanitarian things. And you know, if if there is 
but you know Israel's a first world country so you, you can have rest of minorities in a first world country and that doesn't have to uh, that doesn't have to ever be solved right you could just that could that could just be an equilibrium that goes on forever and you see some of this I mean with the uh, Arab like Gulf states like during the Trump administration uh, just giving up on the Palestinians not liking it you know just just not caring uh, uh, the UAE uh, and these other countries um, and the, you know the Saudis but the, the, although the Saudis didn't uh, officially uh, normalize relations uh, so the, you know the region I mean with the except uh, with the exception of Iran uh, has sort of moved on from the uh, Palestinian cause um, I think you know and, and uh, you know I think that even if the US turns against Israel you know it's hard to imagine but you can imagine you have a very left-wing administration um, you know what could the US do I mean it, the, the US gives a lot of aid but the aid is not decisive right they, they don't need the uh, US aid to, to, to uh uh, to put down the Palestinians or, or to, or to uh, defend their na- defend their national security. Uh, so yeah, I, I think this is probably going to continue for a few decades. I think Israeli society will continue moving to the right. Um, there'll probably be harsher measures against uh, the Palestinians. And you know, I, I I don't you know if we talk in ten years about this, I, I don't I don't know if it'll be much different. Yeah. Okay. Um. You know, I, I feel like we could have a similar conversation ten years ago. So uh, you know, I, I think there's not that much. Um, Daylight between us on this, to be honest, um, both kind of informed by a certain cynicism. I'm older than you, but I've just seen this happen decade after decade. It never ends. It never changes in a fundamental, deep, structural way. And these politicians just keep talking and talking and talking about it, you know, and I think a lot of people are sick of it. So uh, I want to move on to, uh, you know, this wasn't uh, on the agenda, uh, really, when I uh, contacted you, but um, your piece uh, woke institutions is just civil rights law on your Substack uh, has really blown up. Um, it got you all over the Twitters, all over the social media, and I think you know you've gotten on, you've gotten on the TV. You know you've gotten uh, you know Richard Hanania in 2D, you know in full color, <laughs> or maybe not too much color, but in any case that's a different <laughs> issue. <laughs> um, so uh, this is a big deal. Um, why conservatives won't and can't fight for influence and what to do about it? Follow up to why everything is liberal. Uh, and so uh, talk about it. Uh, give, give, give the listeners a, a pressy of, of what's going on here, what you propose and what the reaction's been. Okay. So the, I mean, the wokeness is like all the Republicans talk about. So the CPAC conference this year for the international listeners, that's the, uh, the yearly uh, conference of uh, conservative activists. It was called America Uncanceled. That was the, uh, uh, that was the, that was the slogan of the conference, right? You could, the, the way, you know, they make their pitch to the electorate that the, during the Trump campaign, the RNC, I mean, the, all they talk about is cancel culture. They talk about wokeness. You watch Fox news. It's woke outrage after woke outrage. Oh, Mr. Potato head is now going to be gender neutral uh you know oh the leper you know the lucky charms leprechaun is going to be transgender i mean it, it's, it's stuff like that all day i don't think that one has actually happened but you know it's, it's like something you could imagine happening right yeah yeah <laughs> it's just like really really it's just the stuff all day and you know i i don't like the cultural changes i mean i agree with i agree, I agree with the sort of this critique and unfortunately there's like you know if we debate healthcare, if we debate taxes it's like one side wants to raise taxes one side wants to lower taxes one side wants to expand healthcare coverage or one side doesn't want to expand healthcare coverage. So there's like, you know, there's a clear idea of what each side wants to do. And conservatives don't have that. I mean, they have this thing that is the center of their, um, you know, their appeal to the electorate and the center, you know, the center of sort of uh, what's motivating a lot of people to go into politics. Um, And there's just nothing there. Now, 
I think that this has just been a conceptual mistake. I think people are ignoring, you know, the large fact and, you know, they're ignoring it, I think, for, you know, if we could talk, we could talk about why later. Uh, But what they're ignoring is basically woke institutions has been the law. So civil rights law, the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964 said you can't discriminate based on race. So through a combination of what bureaucrats were doing, uh, what judges were doing, what uh, uh, the uh, presidents uh, in the 60s and what uh, LBJ and uh, Nixon did through executive orders, what that turned into was a series of steps which basically said institutions have to believe that disparities are caused by discrimination, that you're not allowed to have that another view. The uh, federal government forces you, if you want a contract with the federal government, they force you to count your employees by race and by gender and make sure there are no disparities, right? That's, That's up to you. That's your responsibility. Um, every every go- in every government and every federal every uh, every um, uh, department of the federal government has to do the same thanks to these executive orders. On, on the rest of the private sector, there's like I said, disparate impact. If any disparate, if if you're doing anything, if you want to give an intelligence test, if you want to give a fitness exam, and one group does better than the others, that's also that's also a sign of discrimination. H. So what, what happens? So this, this this you know this is sort of it's sort of vague because like everything has a disparate impact. So like you don't really know like what's legal or not, and so you become very risk averse. Um, you develop an HR bureaucracy. So I have data on uh, uh, the, the number of people were working in human resources uh, from like the 1960s to today. People working in, a, they used to call them uh, uh, affirmative action or uh, equal employment off, uh, offices. Uh, they had these incorporations. Now, you know, there'll be diversity uh Inclusion equity, these things take off in the 1960s. Why do they take off? Because people need to keep up with the law. They need to have a defense if they ever go uh, and they're being sued, right? And and so, you know, and, and the EEOC, which is the arm of the government that's enforcing this stuff, gets some really, really big settlements, right? It goes after uh, uh, some cor- uh, some corporations, right? And it gets, it, gets, it, gets huge, it gets huge settlements. It sends a message to the rest of uh, industry. And... You know, and there's also a concept of hostile work environment, which basically says, you know, if somebody finds something offensive, you know, that can be part of a pattern that can establish culpability for a, lo- uh, a lawsuit. So what is wokeness? Wokeness is just the idea that disparities are caused by discrimination. We don't care about all disparities, right? We care about whites doing better than so, uh, some other group. We care about men doing better than women. But, you know, w- disparities where women do better than men, no one uh, no one cares about. So it's a restriction on speech. That's also part of wokeness. And the full-time bureaucracy, I think, is also key to wokeness. You, ha- you see the these uh, protests on college campuses, and they'll often, you know, what other demands will be like hire five new diversity trainers. I mean, it's really, it really is. I mean, it's it's a really, really strange movement. Uh, they just want to they just want to sort of talk to you about your, you know, your thought crimes forever. Um, mm-hmm. And this is all, and this is all either law or it's traceable to law. If a if a look, look, I put it like this: if you take like an, an article from say City Journal or maybe the more edgy stuff, even from National Review. Um, and on race, or race and gender, you see some kind of article like that, and like a CEO just expressed the views in that article. That's borderline illegal, right? So conservatism is basically sort of illegal in institutions. I mean, it, you know, it's 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 iffy, and there's a a lot depends on the interpretation of the uh, the regulator and the judge. But you know, businesses and institutions tend to be risk averse. And so what you happen is what happens is what you end up with is basically every institution looks like, you know, what we see today. They're all woke. There's no risk in being woke. I mean, there is you could alienate customers, uh, but there's no legal risk, right, uh, from doing that. Um, and there's no way to be basically a conservative institution without painting a huge target on your back. Uh, so, you know, I was sort of frustrated how directly related this stuff is to policy. 
and how little people seem to realize that. Um, and the, I mean, the reaction, I mean, it's uh, the libertarians love it. People are always like, oh, you know, we are the new right and libertarians are just weak and they refuse to do anything about, you know, wokeness. But no, the libertarian, I mean, this this lined up perfectly with what libertarians believe because they think government is bad and they, you know, they don't like anti-discrimination laws. And so uh, Brian Kaplan, you know, said it was like, you know, like the best article I'd ever written. And, you know, people like that really liked it. Um, Reason Magazine uh I think I think liked it, um, and then uh, uh, or Reason Magazine might have liked the one uh, one one or two, but the articles before that, um, and then you know yeah, like the people on the populist right liked it too, um, like the American Mind uh, reprinted the article, um, and uh, yeah, and some liberals uh, had like tepid criticism. I think Iglesias said, you know, if this is the you know he said this could be like a new fugitism be- between the anti you know the basis of a new. F- uh, he said, I'm hearing so much you know praise for this from libertarians. This could be the basis of a, like a return to fugitism with the anti PC right and the libertarians uh, coming together. Uh, and then some people said, you know, uh, that uh, you know some people had tepid criticism. Some people said, oh, it's just Jim Crow. You know, these were the, the you know the stupider uh, uh, st- uh, the, you know among the stupider commentators. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I think taking this healthy energy of like not liking what's going on um, and turning it into something you know positive that you could actually do about it, you know, I think that's I think that's something we should encourage. And if you think there's nothing you could do about it, just stop talking about it. Don't don't have a political party you know focused on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting to me um, as we're as we are recording right now. Um, I'm hearing that. Uh, like I, I saw a friend, an old friend that I've known for many years, uh, wonder why CRT is being talked of so much. Uh, it's in a weird academic thing. And this friend doesn't have children and he never plans to have children. Um, and I just kind of basically said, well, it's affected our, our family. And I'm not going to give personal examples because, you know, my children have their privacy. And, you know, so I'm not going to just say what happened to them and what happened to our family. But um, it's affecting us. Uh, it's not, you know, they're not reading Kimberly Crenshaw or whatever. I don't know. All these different things. I don't care. I don't care what these things are. Um, but it's affecting the culture. So conservatives, um, going back to, well, not just going back to, but Andrew Breitbart family said, um, you know, uh, politics is downstream of culture, right? Are you kind of saying the reverse? Yeah, I think the reverse is true. I think that's I think that's a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a cope. Uh, I think I think yeah, I think power ultimately uh, drives culture more than the. I mean, they're obviously they co-evolve and they, they work together. But I think and every case has to be taken on a case by case basis. Uh, I, I think in this case though, you could you could trace pretty you could trace from civil uh, civil rights interpretation of the civil rights law uh, to the rise of HR and bureaucracy. You could trace that you know, and I do that in my paper uh, pretty. Clear clearly. Um, and, uh, you know, you talked about critical race theory. Why is it being taught in schools? Look, there's all these fads that come along. So there used to be the implicit association test. You know all about the replication crisis and all that. Uh, it turned out to be nonsense. But, you know, it was promoted by, you know, you know the, these corporations, they just want to make money and they don't want to be sued. And like fads come along and there's just a market for it because they're looking, they're basically looking for defenses, right? When the EEOC or uh, some lawsuit comes after them. Um, and, you know, they're not social scientists. They don't know what's going on, right? So they're just like pulling things off the shelf. And this opens up opportunities for entrepreneurs. So the implicit association does that thing where you see a picture of a white face and a picture of a black face and you see which one you're more positive. You know, it's all deb- been debunked. Um, it's all nonsense. Uh, but that was, that was you know, in, in the corporate world for a while. Uh, and so you have, you know, you have Robin D'Angelo, critical uh, 
critical race theory creating people say oh there's a difference you know academic critical race theory versus the populism yeah of course but like you know it's, it's pretty much the same you know the same ideas at the core um and yeah i mean one thing courts do is they say or regulators do is that they say a back you know they adopt the best practices approach so if they want to know if you're practicing enough affirmative action for a government contract or you're having a non-discriminatory environment they want to see that you're doing what other people are doing if they don't care about it none of these people are social scientists nobody cares about evidence right you're just you're just trying to basically uh get by you create these bureaucracies these bureaucracies uh within the corporation the uh, dei people and the hr people they start to have they have their own views and they start to have their own uh interests and so yeah critical race theory i mean it's something i I think it's ugly and evil like many people say and i I wholeheartedly support efforts to ban it in whatever whatever form uh you can but it's part of a larger story and when it goes away if if it goes away you know something else will come later if you don't deal with the root of the problem and so uh is this kind of a hopeful message yeah, I think so. Look, it's executive orders. You could you could get rid of affirmative action in the federal government. And look, we have look we haven't nobody's tried it. This is the thing. It's like there is a path, and Republicans have been talking about democratizing Iraq and taxes and guns, you know, for for years. And you know what? The things that they've talked about and the things they've actually cared about, they've went to bat for um, tax cuts. Uh, their precious wars and uh, a lot of the stuff. A lot of the stuff. Uh, and the gun, you know, guns, gun laws. Sometimes something will have ninety percent support, some kind of gun control measure, and it won't get passed just because the Republicans have political power and they're so, you know, they're they're uh, so united on this issue. Um, so yes, I think I think I have hope that politics can do something. It, it hasn't been tried uh, in this area, and you know, there's a there's a. Um, there's a, uh, you know, it's, it's, and it's indirect, you know, I'm trying to get a culture through law and it didn't happen overnight where, you know, the, so these, uh, broad interpretations of civil rights law led to, you know, sort of where we are today. It let, you know, it was decades and there was a, you know, society had to sort of evolve in a certain direction. So it wouldn't change the culture over, overnight. You'll still have your Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss stories for a while, no matter what. Uh, but you know, you, you, you take the sort of the boot off the neck of institutions, you, create fewer opportunities for the civil rights commissars and you know hopefully you just hope for in a few decades good things happen okay um you know that's 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 pretty positive i mean you know depending on what your political orientation is i know some of the listeners uh um they might be alarmed by this they might love critical race theory i don't know you know so no but uh it's definitely like resetting the terms of the debate i do think a lot of conservatives to be frank me myself uh you know we've been pretty pessimistic and bearish and you know this is kind of like okay we we might I'm, be able to do something about this you know yeah i'm bearish like it's like they have to listen to me and then they have to win this political fight and then they have to like wait and hope it evolves in a way that it works right but at least there's a path you know that's all i'll say it's a lot of yeah yeah and so i i want to i want to ask you about your baron bear uh, united states um you know united states year 2040 united states year tw- 2099 like do you have any thoughts on what you think the most likely outcome of the various demographic and cultural forces are going to be in this country? Uh, I, th- you know, twenty ninety nine. I wouldn't trust anybody who tried to forecast uh, that far into the future. Uh, twenty forty, I guess, is not that far. Uh, I think, you know, you know, I, I think, our, you know, I think there's deep structural things. What's going on with American politics? Uh, I think that you know we're we're a rich society. We're a highly divided society, um, and we are you know divided by divided by you know that there's a there's an established conservative media. There's established liberal media. 
Um, and I think this, I mean, and people tend to think, you know, people see like instability. So this is what we talked about before me versus like, uh, Peter Churchin and Peter Churchin said, um, you know, we're, we're, we're more likely than not going to have a civil war. And I said, no. And I think, you know, it's, it's been like a year since we've had that debate. And I think I'm clearly, you know, I, I think it's, it's looking more like I was right. And I, you know, I think that I'm going to continue to be right on that. I think the system is stable. I mean, I think when you have people fighting over, um, uh, sort of symbolic, you know, symbolic things, and you have these institutions. I mean, and the institutions are strong. I mean, they're strong in the sense they they preserve themselves. There was a, when the internet popped up. Um, and social media popped up and there was, you know, there was a time when like the New York Times and the Washington Post were losing readers. And, you know, you could think that like they would go away and they'd be replaced by like Alex Jones and Joe Rogan being like the most important people in American politics. I mean, it looked like we could have been heading in that direction for a little while. Uh, but then they, you know, they censored like people like Alex Jones and the people who are far right and, you know, Joe Rogan. I mean, he's still around. He, he, he's doing his, he's uh, doing the Spotify thing now. Um but but basically, you know, the, they they adjusted the power adjusted. So the New York Times and Washington Post have more readers now than ever. You know, they they were they were losing influence for a while. Now it's just going through uh, going through the roof. Um, and yeah, part of it was they basically, you know, they they leaned on they and their uh, and politicians leaned on, leaned on um, leaned on uh, uh, Silicon Valley, the tech companies, to sort of rework their algorithms, right? So you, you wouldn't find mm-hmm. you know, the, the the so-called dangerous stuff at the top of it. And they, you know, they started they started uh, they started deciding what was credible news. What was not credible news that they started gaming the system in, in their favor. Um, so I think the lesson, I mean, the lesson of that, so like there was a point where I think if you kept like the Google algorithm, what it was in like 2012 or, uh, you know, and, and YouTube, you know, what it was around that time. I don't know if YouTube was, was big in 2012, but I think if you kept like, you know, the, the pre 2015 internet and just sort of let things develop, you could have had some radical things happen. Um, but they, you know, but, but power, but power adjusted and, you know, it's still the biggest, you know, the, the, the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest, uh, influencers are still also New York Times, uh, CNN, uh, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, uh, the establishment, which is mostly mostly the same people or the same kind of people. Um, and so I don't think I don't think we're in a situation where we're going to see radical change in the next 10, 20 years. I mean, I think that's the greatest extent possible. We're going to be, you know, I think America is going to, uh, you know, the system is pretty stable. Um, I think that the rise of China is going to you know, potentially have a psychological uh, impact. Um, you know, it, it's it's the, you know, the projections are it'll have two or three times uh, the economy of the U.S. by, say, like 2050. Um, I think that a lot of people are looking for reasons to think China's going to collapse or fall or, you know, uh, you know, this used to be the idea that they would democratize. That's going away. The people used to believe they would collapse. I mean, I think that's becoming less credible, despite Gordon Chang still, you know, being on TV uh, promoting his book. Um, I think if they, you know, if they get their birth rates up, and it looks like they're going to start like actually making that a huge priority, you know, I think it could be quite shocking to the United States because, like, the only the last like cope they have of like American, uh, you know, maintaining its edge. And even even with I mean even with the demographic projections, China's still going to be a bigger economy. But you know the idea that it's going to have sort of long term uh, uh, long term unable to keep up while U.S. has this. Uh uh, immigration system that lets people in. You know, some people are pessimistic about that, but you know, I think the mainstream view is okay. So the uh, the demographics are being replenished. Um, I think if China gets the birth rate up, I think it's going to be you know, your, people are going to look and they're going to say, you know, this is <laughs> you know, we we've lost our spot. And and I don't know like how you know, and you could imagine like a um, uh, you could imagine like a showdown over Taiwan or something. And you know, the idea that the China is going to have twice the economy of the U.S. and the U.S. is going to be able to like 
you know, beat it in a war in its own backyard. I think that's very naive. I think that's, you know, and I think would be crazy to try. I think we'd be crazy to, you know, go to war over Taiwan or something. So you could imagine mm-hmm. some showdown where the U.S. Uh, backs down and there's something that happens. But, the, but then, like, you know, I, I think back to, like, Hong Kong and, like, you know, how people were, like, all on Twitter and, like, were, like, uh, you know, I stand with Hong Kong. And, you know, they just crushed the democracy movement, right? I mean, they just – they just and now we don't remember Hong Kong. And so Taiwan could be the same thing. Maybe we're just so in our bubble. Um, nothing can psychologically sort of, sort of burst. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think everything gets sort of – everything gets wrapped up in the same narrative. And we still sort of think America is the best, but we also think, like, the other side is either Nazis or, like, woke crazy totalitarians who are destroying the country. Uh, but there's still this idea that, like, like still America is better than everyone else in the world. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think there's, I think there's going to be more of that, uh, more of that in the future. Well, so, um, you know, you have a piece, you're talking about China, you have a piece why most China analysis is just cope. I do have to say, Richard, uh, your, uh, your sub stack, you're, you're, you're good with the titles. You're good with the topics. Um, definitely. I can see, you know, people are probably clicking through to read this stuff. I think I'm, pretty much agree with a lot of your points and i want you to like to summarize it for the listener in a bit but um one question i do have about china is its workforce its labor force is going down it has you know serious issues with its future dependency ratio um i wonder if that's going to be just a major drag on its rise to prominence i mean the peak of american power was during the baby boom arguably well maybe baby boom and then also maybe the late 1990s right um mm-hmm. i don't know uh, how you measure that but uh, our demographics were not nearly um, as concerning, I guess, back then. So, I mean, how do you, I mean, I know you said that, oh, they want to turn around their, their birth rate. But, I mean, Singapore tried to turn around its birth rate. Now, Singapore is not like an apples to apples comparison. It's a city state. Uh, but, you know, countries that have tried to turn around their birth, birth rate have had a really difficult time. So uh, that's the main issue where I'm just like, ah, oh, these are serious headwinds. Yeah. So, so, I mean, the way we talk about the birth rate issue, I mean, I think, I don't know if you remember like five, 10 years ago, people were saying similar things about Russia. You know, a lot of countries have low birth rates when they, you know, the developing and uh, developed world. And it's, you know, it's when people don't, you know, when people in America or analysts don't like the country, they, they make it into a much bigger problems than, than you might, you might think it should be objectively. So like when you're talking, so it depends on what you're talking about. So if you're talking about China and like relative to Taiwan, Taiwan's demographics are, are worse. Taiwan's birth rate is lower. Nobody says Taiwan will never be able to defend itself because it has no birth rate. So it's just going to be like half the size, you know, in a few generations. And so that's something you have to remember. If you're talking about China relative to a lot of its neighbors, a lot of its neighbors are in the same position uh, or worse. Um, and then as far as the, um, uh, you know, whether China say, you know, has enough power to challenge the U.S. The, I mean, the there's also the other, you know, the other the other point is that it's just still a middle income country. Middle income countries grow faster than higher income countries so if you just do the projections and you include the um and you include sort of the demographic information i mean without any you know real turnaround in chinese birth rates china will still have like twice or three times the economy of the u.s i mean that's just going to happen unless you get to glacius this is uh, one billion americans um so yeah i mean it's it, it's uh the country you know is probably not going to achieve its full potential because it's gonna you know if it gets older um they will you know there's um uh, as far as turning around the birth rate, I think you know. I think the, you know, the uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, the, the the you know, the Communist Party of China has really you know uh, confounded its critics at, at most points over the last uh, for, uh, forty years or so. Um, a lot of people didn't think this uh, growth was possible. You know, I tend to think that the um, 
Uh, I tend to think the it, it's mostly a cultural thing, the birth rate. So you know, I think if you just have some uh, you know financial incentives and you you know you don't change the culture, and most and you, you know most democracies can't really change the culture. Sing- Singapore is a you know it's not a democracy, but it's something you know it's something more of an open country. Um, and you know the Chinese, you know the Chinese control the internet. Um, you know they they have a they have a pretty uh, advanced surveillance system, um, and they're highly competent. So we we haven't seen this movie before. We haven't seen this tried. Um, and you know I don't know it'll work or it's not, but you know I I, I think it's still to be determined. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, again, I I think you're on the right track. You know, what I like to point out to people is that the last time the United States was not the world's largest economy, at least according to Angus Madison. Uh, was like about 1870 and then it was china so uh you know it's kind of like we're going back uh to the way it was although obviously the world is radically different history doesn't repeat it rhymes yeah i i I do think the psychological shock of not being number one though will have an impact on this country um in ways that are going to be hard to understand yeah objectively i think the psychological shock should be like high even more than you say because you say well 1870 china had the largest economy in the world it was just because it just had so many i mean so many people china was not at the cutting edge of science and technology now if you look at like um you know per like uh patents uh per capita it used to be way way behind it's catching up you know it's doing a, you know basically for a middle income country and you have things like huawei where china is just the leader in 5g it's a leader in a lot of technologies so it's it's not like china was like you know the the uh, most uh technologically advanced or anywhere near it i mean it was always the west right was the most advanced um for the last a few hundred years since the industrial revolution um and so or probably you know probably even more as far as you know just like uh, per capita living standards i don't think it just started with the industrial revolution um and so yeah but like you know our uh, you know so i think you know objectively it's we're moving towards something different now china passed the u.s um in gdp as far as purchasing power parity right um a few you know uh uh a while ago i think five ten years ago um and you know that didn't really have a huge psychological effect. I don't think we talk about or think about China that much. Um, so yeah, I mean, why can't it pass us on all measures? And we still sort of just keep, you know, mm-hmm. talking about Black Lives Matter and critical race theory. <laughs> you know, I well, know. I don't know. I mean, people. Uh, so PPP is uh, so like what PPC is purchasing power parity, right? And it's uh-huh. like cheaper to live in some countries. Blah blah blah. I think um, so. That's a talking point that people always make. Bangladesh recently surpassed India in nominal GDP per capita, but uh, its PPP is still lower, and Indians routinely point that out. So I think that that that's it is a cope, but it's a very plausible and robust cope from what I can tell. Uh, they might not even know what PPP means. They just know that they're higher on PPP. That's the key, right? And so I think, um, I, I think what it's going to impact is not the regular person, because the regular person doesn't keep track of this stuff, but... It's going to be on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. It's going to be like a feature in the New York Times when the G- when, when the aggregate GDP nominal gets bigger. Yeah, I mean it'll be it'll be a story. Um, you know, will it be something you know that we think about a lot compared to whatever you know whatever's going on with the equivalent of George Floyd? You know, whatever that is in, in five to ten years. So I, one thing that I, I'm wondering about is people are wondering, uh, you know, like, what is Richard Hanania's deal? Uh, people know that I, I know you and I, you know, I have, you know, there was a period when, when you were a sub, sub 10,000 uh, Twitter account, I was retweeting you because I thought you were fun and interesting. 
and now you have your own megaphone, so I don't retweet you as much. But uh, what what is up with the mega contrarianism? Because because I don't know what's up with that. People are always asking me like, what is his deal? What is your deal, Richard? I mean, it's what what is? It? I just say what I think. <laughs> it's just it's just basically, you know, it's uh, you know, I have a few passions. I mean, I've always cared a lot about American foreign policy. Um, I'm concerned about the uh, uh, sort of the, the cultural trends we're seeing. You know, I, I dislike bad arguments, whether they're from people on my side or you know, people on uh, the other side. But yeah, I don't feel a need to have like a um a political home, right? I mean, I don't think it's like secret what I believe on any particular. Uh, issue um but you know i mean i sound like one of these like gender fluid kids man i don't need to put a label on it you know it's just like you know that's that's the way i feel you know i think you know i i you know i i don't think every domain has to be you know how you feel about every domain in uh, every uh, sort of policy or it has to be correlated with everything else right i think you know i think the, the foreign policy i think the uh the the left i mean the real left not like the like rachel maddow like oh my god I, you know we love nato left i mean i think like the the, the like the jill stein uh you know i wouldn't go as, i mean i'm not you know i'm not endorsing jill stein now, but uh you know the, the the further left is right on foreign policy um i think conservatives are you know right on a lot of the cultural stuff but a lot of times they don't go far enough um on you know the economic stuff you know i'm pretty much uh you know, I'm pretty much not an interventionist in the economy. I think markets work. Um, yeah, I mean, they, I don't think there, I don't think there's any like I don't think there's like anything hide, hidden here. It's just people sort of can't you know can't put it together and can't put an easy label on it. Yeah, you know, I will say many years ago I used to do this thing where uh, I would routinely retweet or tweet out studies that I was skeptical of, and I did that because I'm curious about things that go against my prior so I can improve my understanding of the world. But people assumed it was an endorsement of the study. And so they would kind of express their anger at me. How could I, how could I accept such a study? And I would have to say, so what I'm trying to do is tweet out things that I don't always support because I'm just curious about different ideas and I might be wrong and change my view. And I just stopped doing it because I got sick of explaining that to people. Uh, because they just think whatever you tweet out must be what you believe. Sometimes things are just interesting. Yeah, I I, I agree, and you know, it's sort of like the I mean, I'm always interested. You know, a lot of sort of my commentaries, I guess, you know, maybe you know people can find this interesting or not. It's sort of met, you know meta narrative, right? I, I'm interested in the debate, the like the debate about the debate and the way we're framing the debate, right? I'm interested that like, you know, we're having this discussion about cancel culture, right? And it's just so policy free. That's fascinating to me. I, I want to, you know, figure out something, just for sometimes figure out what's going to God, sometimes try to uh, influence it in a, uh, in a more positive direction. Right. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, and, you know, you, you know, sometimes you could say, well, you know, I, I, ch- I changed my mind on this issue or, you know, I learned more. I was like, it, I was like more of the um, COVID, uh, you know, I started out on the COVID stuff. I started out very sort of, oh, lockdowns. We have to like be very careful. Just the evidence came in and talking to my uh, friend, uh, Philippe Lemoyne and his writing, I, I sort of went to the other side of that. So, that, you know, just sort of like being willing to look at evidence and, uh, uh, you know, sort of update your beliefs over time. You know, I think people appreciate that, or at least some people do. Well, so, um, you know, I want to close out. I want to ask you then about COVID. Uh, uh, as a, you know, political social observer, what are the lessons that you've drawn from COVID-19 pandemic and how different nation states and cultures reacted? 
I think it's, um, you know, I, I, you know, so at the beginning, there seemed to be like a simple story. The U.S. was really screwing it up. Uh, over time, basically, like, and, you know, we, and then also the narrative was uh, Sweden, you know, had sort of got for the herd immunity thing and they screwed. Over time, though, uh, like they sort of, all the countries sort of converged and there was hard, in the West at least, and there was a harder, there was hard to find sort of any large policy difference. And to me, you know, like that Philippe says this too, you know, for to justify lockdowns, you have to have like a huge, it can't save like, you know, a few lives or like have a five or 10%. If you're going to like take away people's, you know, right to travel, it's got to be a huge, massive, not just travel, but socialize and, you know, just live normally, give away a year of your childhood. I mean, that's huge. It's got to be a, there's got to be a huge, huge payoff, right? And we just don't see that. Um, Now there was, you know, uh, successes in East Asia. Um, And so, uh, you know, going back to, you know, uh, uh, so going back to China, I mean, the fact that it came first, whether it was lab leak or a lot, not, and people debate that, the fact that it came first and they beat the thing, I mean, it's pretty amazing. But, you know, the, the, the so funny about the American uh, sort of getting angry is China's like, they hid, they hid this information from us. And if only they'd given it to us like a couple of weeks sooner, we would have had all this. And it's just so funny because like we were doing nothing. Like we had months and months of warning and we were doing nothing. And like Trump was still saying, you know, the disease is going to go away any day now, like in June or July, right? So it's like if China had mm-hmm. told us two weeks before you know what was going on we would have got on top of it you know so, so, it's, so it's it's pretty ridiculous i think the chinese response was uh impressive um i think you know the, the uh, taiwan and south korea have also done well um i think the probably it's not um it's probably in many of these cases i mean even japan did well i think they've i think they their uh cases of death rate has, has gone up recently so I think Japan has done worse out of uh, worse out of the uh, the East Asian countries, um, but still better than um, pretty much all or or all the yeah. countries in the in the West. And you know, the, I think uh, the you know culture and behavior matters a lot. I live in Southern California, and masks were normal for uh, Asians out here uh, before COVID. Um, you know, that it's just part of the culture to wear masks and being very careful. And many, a lot of the uh, a lot of uh, people I know from China or Korea are just super, super careful about COVID. I mean, they're still scared of it. They've been vaccinated, and you know, uh, uh, here where I live, you know, there's barely uh, there's barely any deaths anymore. They're still they're still freaked out. Um, so you know, all these things matter. Um, our institutions, you know, I think didn't do well. I think the public health has been a failure. I think public health should have what it should have done is like like now it should realize that you know the if the policy doesn't matter much i mean i think you should give people the freedom but like you know even like with you know some of them were against um most of them according to a poll in the new york times like we're against like uh stop wearing masks uh after you've been vaccinated like outside i mean it's absolutely the, the risk aversion this you know the safetyism the kind of you know inability to do cost benefit analysis and i don't know if this uh, the american public health establishment is, is i don't know if it's this man in other western countries this particular aspect of the uh um of the uh of covid uh, but I, I I just was shocked by it. I actually, I, I changed the mission of CSPI to a more policy-focused area, just knowing that epidemiologists have power, right? That just mm-hmm. is finding how bad they are at logic and how bad they are at cost-benefit analysis. We've got to, we've got to do something about it because another disease could come, and I you know I'm really scared that the, of these people. It could be you know half as bad, and they would be recommending you know the same the same uh, uh, strict measures or more. You know, then when you can't do cost-benefit analysis, you know anything is really anything is possible. Uh, so I think you know keeping this particular community up. I don't know if there's much that's. Um, unique about them it sort of reminds me not a, lot, not a lot of people have made this connection but like to the hysteria about the war uh, war on terrorism like the amount of money and resources we put into stopping terrorism after 9-11 and like not even counting the wars 
uh, was just ridiculous. It just was crazy from a cost benefit. Even if you stopped like four more 9-11s, you know, it just, there was a book on this by uh, Mueller and Stewart. They just tried to do cost benefits, see if any of the uh, anti-terrorism made, uh, stuff made sense. And it was just, people were just crazy. And, you know, it was just like, you know, we can't let a single case. We don't care how unpleasant we make air travel. We don't care how hard we make people's lives. You know, it just, we just have to get it down to zero. And so I think, you know, I think it's partly it's just living in a democracy and a cessationist media. I mean, I think people freak out. I think people develop expertise, but their expertise doesn't make them better thinkers or better do cost benefit analysis. All they can think of is, oh, I'm a terror expert. So all I have to think about is every way we could have terrorism or I'm a public health person. And I have to think just about how to maximize public health with no consideration of the economic costs or people's happiness or well-being. Um, uh, and this is this is a serious problem. Um, and so, yeah, I'm I'm against expertise. <laughs> I'm against like the way our institutions are working right now. And I think you know we just have to try to do things better. All right. So I, I'm going to ask you a last question. I was going to ask you this question, but um, you have been running this think tank uh, for what a year now? About yeah, uh, not even a year. I think like uh, nine months or something like that. So CSPI, which uh, it has an acronym that makes it sound like an um, I don't know, private espionage operation and that you are the antagonist in some spy film, CSP, I don't know. But uh, um, aside from that, uh, what have you learned then? What have you learned? Uh, Running an organization like this, having impact, like making a difference. You know, I think there is you know, there is an audience out there. You know, I, uh, there was a there was a point where I thought the stu- you know I wanted to do like the best intellectual work and get the smartest people that you know that were in the field of uh, that were doing social science work or were talking about uh, important issues. And I thought there might be a trade off between that and sort of our growth. And maybe there is. I mean, if we were just doing complete clickbait stuff and I focused my mind hundred on that, maybe we'd be we'd be even getting more impact than we are. Um, but you know, I, I you know I, I did realize. And it's maybe optimistic that there is an audience out there just for smart, uh, just you know, for uh, smart, you know, data driven uh, analysis of, of the problems we're facing. So, I mean, the fact that you know, uh, uh Philippe's um, uh, uh, article on, lo- on lockdowns, uh, you know, was, was in the Wall Street Journal, got to number one. It was covered everywhere. My stuff on civil rights law, it was covered. I think there, you know, there is a, um, you know, there is a, a, a hunger out there for, you know, I think for for smart analysis, for analysis that's driven not by tribalism, that, that's realistic, that you know puts forth solutions when they point out uh, there are problems. Um, whether that will actually convert, you know, to policy influence um we'll still have to see you know i, I think we're, we're we're thinking more about that i mean you have to have not just a sort of theory of what's going wrong and like uh what you want to see done but I, you know what i try to do in the uh in the piece on uh, civil rights laws try to like have some political commentary and have some kind of blueprint of how you get there in a realistic way. I mean, we, we, we consider these things. Uh, but yeah, you know, I've, I've learned, I've learned that the, you know, that that's, that's a optimistic part of what I learned that people are, uh, you know, that, that, that there is, you know, interest in, you know, uh, in high quality work. Um, at the same time, um, you know, I've also, I think I've, you know, I've also realized that, um, you know, talent, ta- you know, and there's also, you know, I'll say another thing. There's talent out there, and there's a lot of people out there who would want to be sort of in the public space, but don't have um, anywhere to go. So I've I've had, you know, we're not we're not that huge. I mean, we've been in, uh, you know, we you know we've been in a lot of media outlets. You know, we have uh, social media presence, uh, but just like really really smart people who are just undergrads, um, who are just starting out at grad school, um, some with you know real data skills who can do good work are you know reaching out to us and say, you know, I'm not a 
uh, you know, I'm not really a um, uh, person who just comes down on one side of the political aisle, but I think you're doing really smart stuff and I want to be involved. Uh, you know, that's inspiring. So I, you know, I think you can model what you want in the world. I mean, there's tons of people with brains out there. There's tons of people who care about policy, who care about cultural issues, who want to make a difference. If all they see out there is like, you know, partisan bickering or, you know, commentary that's not very intelligent, they're going to, you know, they're going to be turned off. They're going to go into academia or they're going to go do something in the private sector and they're never going to put their, you know, their brains and their work ethic to making the world, uh, uh, making the world a better place. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, the importance, and also, you know, and, and also, I mean, I'll say another thing is, like you know i didn't really model myself to be i mean i think you, you know you call me heterodox and for my twitter i didn't really model myself to like have a niche within conservatism or within liberalism um and you know sometimes you don't you don't have to do that i mean you think like okay find you know find your, your, your place sometimes it's just about being being different and not just different you know not different in a bad way hopefully but different in a good way you're doing something that you know people will start to trust your objectivity they'll trust your uh, analytical skills and the, you know you want to bring people along who are also doing that uh, i don't think I, I don't think this market for what i'm doing you know smart commentary that doesn't you know that uh, that's honest and not trying to you know just uh win points for one side or the other i don't think that market is anywhere near saturated yet so people want to be involved with cspi they want to do their own thing you know please please reach out to me you know twitter is probably the easiest my uh, my DMs are uh, are open, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you know my my experience so far has made me made me optimistic. I'm not always optimistic on social trends and you know international affairs and the things I co- I comment on, but I but my experience so far has made me optimistic about intellectual culture potentially changing at least. Well, I mean, I think I think that's a, that's a good a good spot to end on. Um, you know, Richard, I enjoy talking to you. Um, I think if the listeners they like the stuff that I produce, um, you know, check out. Check out his Substack. Check out his Twitter. Uh, it's always um, interesting, you know, whether you agree with it or not. And sometimes I'm just like, you know, what is what is this guy doing, you know? But uh, <laughs> it's um, I find you know, I, it's just it's in, informationally dense, and uh, there's a lot of stuff to engage with there. Uh, you know, I think you know, I do have to observe. There's a lot of people out there. Um, I know exactly what they're gonna say on all the issues they ever talk about. So I don't really pay attention to them, you know, like I have not watched Hannity since the 1990s, you know? (laughs) Yeah. 1997. I watched Hannity and Combs. That was the last time I had a roommate who would watch it. And so the reason I don't watch it is like, I don't care if he's kind of handsome for, uh, you know, a midwit, you know, um, I just think I, you know, exactly what he's going to say. He, he like does a talking point. So I appreciate that you don't do that. Um, you know, you speak your mind, um, you talk about the truth and that's, what's important. We don't have enough people like that in the world right now. Um, it's not that people lie, but they hold their tongue. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I like that you don't hold your tongue all the time. (laughs) I mean, you know, sometimes it's prudent uh, to hold your tongue a little bit of the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What I tell people is you want to be brave, but if you like, say you're in a war and you're just like, uh, running into machine gun fire, you know, you don't want to do that. You want to be yeah, yeah. Unless you're, you unless you're, fire. unless you're Gal Gadot. <laughs> yeah, so Gal Gadot. You can, you can pull that out. You can pull that out. <laughs> All right, Richard. Uh, it was great talking to you. Um, I will see you online, man. Yeah, I appreciate it, Rizib. It was fun. Thanks.
This podcast for kids.